You glad you came to church today? You glad you came to church today? Come on now. Amen. 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 What a wonderful time so far it has been in the presence of the Lord, in the presence of God's people. Amen. Amen. Well, it's good to see all of you guys here. My name is Pastor Ray. I'm one of the pastors here at Living Way, and we're just praying and hoping that you would indeed just experience Christ in a way in which you are compelled to find all that you need and all that you want in him. Just a couple of announcements of my own. Um, our building campaign, we're still on board with that. We're done with the series as far as just up here, up front. But we're still going to be continuing that uh, just in the time forward. One um, announcement is come November 20th, which is actually Thanksgiving Sunday, is when we're just going to open it up for all of you that have been a part of this journey so far to give. To give in the way which the Lord has just compelled upon you, your heart, whether it be you, yourself, your family, whatever it may be. So we just want to encourage you from now until that point to just be praying and asking God, what does it look like for you to come alongside the vision that God has called this church living way to be a part of as you are a part of that movement in the future? A couple of the things that I just want to encourage you with is, how many of you guys got the, these cards? Okay, all right, if you didn't, these are just prayer reminder cards. And, and every day there's a scripture verse that just reminds you of how you can be praying for our campaign moving forward. So if you didn't get one, um, you can find those. Just track down Rev. We probably have some downstairs still. Uh, just use these as just a reminder. If you're like me, I'm quite forgetful, okay? And so if you could even, even if you're sitting now and you're one to forget, and I'm leading this campaign and I forget, put it on your phone. Uh, put it whatever you need to just remind yourself to pray. Also, downstairs we have air fresheners, and it's our theme verse, nothing is too hard for God, Jeremiah thirty-two twenty-seven. And so you want to put an air freshener up in your house because your bathroom is funky, then pray at the same time when you smell this smell, or your car, or whatever it may be. Amen? Amen. Let the aroma of your prayers go up. All right. Okay. Well, all right. Well, let's... Uh, Let's engage God uh, in his word. Uh, if you can have your Bibles, uh, you can turn with them to our initial passage. Just will be real quick is in Micah chapter 7. And our main passage will be in Ephesians chapter 1, verse, starting at verse 15. So Micah is one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. Micah. Micah chapter 7. Micah chapter 7. Micah chapter 7. Okay. All right. I know this, this is kind of hard to find, huh? I'm, I'm struggling too. I'm, I'm the one preaching on it. And I'm like, where's Micah? Okay. Micah chapter 7. If you could please stand with me for the reading of God's word as we honor his word. Micah chapter 7, starting at verse 1. The prophet says, Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there was no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. 
The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his souls. Thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright of them a thorn hedge. The day of your watchmen, of your punishment has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth for her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. Thus ends the reading of the word of the living God. God, I pray right now, not by might, nor by power, but by your spirit, will you fall and capture every one of our minds and hearts in a way, Lord God, that leaves an indelible mark. Pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. You may be seated. Now here in Micah chapter 7, you have a man who is experiencing profound despair. And why? Well, through the verses from verse 1 to verse 6, first, he articulates the fact that there is a society that is failing him. As he's watching men and women hunt one another down. He also talks about the leadership and how they are failing him as the politicians of his day are using their power and their position for selfish gain. You see, Micah here is in despair because even friends, even neighbors are failing him as the motivations of their hearts become suspect as they use one another in their relationships to gain selfishly. And he even goes so far as the even most intimate relationships. He talks about wives, mothers, fathers, children, husbands. And how each of even these intimate relationships, instead of moving and operating in love, what he sees around him are relationships that are simply full of contempt and self-consumption. And if this wasn't enough for Micah during the day here in the life of Israel, what made things even worse is that Micah, you realize, has spent his entire life passionately pursuing and pushing to see more of God in God's people, to see the reality of God's presence amongst his people, to feel his presence with the villages of Judah. And yet now Micah finds himself at the end of his ministry. And what does he find at the end of it? With all the fruit of his labor? Simply all of his desires, his ambitions, are rotting right before his eyes. As here in this context, the king of Israel, King Hezekiah's, all of his good and wonderful reforms for God's people are now being totally demolished by the new king, King Manasseh who was allowed for debauchery to fill Israel's cup. It's no wonder at the beginning of verse 1 that Micah declares, woe is me. And maybe that's you. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you see even before you 
as I'm sure all of us do in some way, shape, or form, like in that day, society is failing us. As we hunt one another down, social media, the battleground. Social psychologist William Brad from Yale University says, this is the first evidence that some people learn to express more outrage over time because they are rewarded by the basic design of social media. Social media is rewarding outrageous behavior that pits us against one another. Every one of your pings, every one of the things that come up in front of you are helping you to move into greater depths of warfare against the other. The leadership around us is failing. As the politicians that have sworn to serve use their power for selfish gain. And I don't have to give much detail. If you just simply look at the news for five minutes, you'll know I'm telling the truth. But not only that, we find ourselves in a time of inflation. And many of you here, perhaps under the sound of my voice, are struggling just to meet ends meet. Gas prices, $6 a gallon and above. Those perhaps maybe in your life right now you may deem were friends. You have found maybe in a season in your life where a friendship that you treasured so deeply has been filled with, and you didn't realize it, but selfish motives, and you find yourself hurt and in pain. Perhaps even in your life, some of the most intimate relationships, just like Micah, are falling short. You're the husband and wife relationship in your life, the parental relationship in your life, the close friends in your life, your children just aren't measuring up into the ways in which you desire for them. Whatever it may be, you might find yourself just like Micah, like Micah, feeling, woe is me. And perhaps you too, like Micah, have watched all your efforts in your life to make a positive change. Maybe you've invested in some individual. Maybe you've invested in your work or your job. Maybe you've invested in your family, whatever it may be, and you've worked so hard, and yet you've seen all of your efforts and energy dashed to pieces as what you thought would be the outcome out of a desire to do good in the world around you finds itself falling far short. Maybe you're in that place like Micah, where in some area of your life you're saying, woe is me. Well, what is it that you need to ultimately remain buoyant in the midst of the woe is me of life and why? What I'm going to share with you this morning is not a cure-all. It, the complexities of the things that we endure in our lives as far as the woe is me's are concerned are far greater than just simply having some pat answer. But I do want to share a God-given aid that can come alongside you in the complexities of life, in the challenges, and in the disappointments. We find ourselves once again back in the book of Ephesians, toward the beginning of Ephesians, to be exact. And Paul is given a string, a long string of what he calls in chapter 1, verse 3, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places that belongs to us. And he articulated those from verse 3 to verse 11. And then he gives a response to that wonderful litany of heavenly blessings. 
And so I have two questions, or really three. What is it that you need to remain buoyant in the midst of the woes of life, and why? And then secondarily, how do you gain this blessing that God gives you that you might remain buoyant? So let's answer the first question. What is it that you need to remain buoyant? Chapter 1, verse 15. Paul begins now to pray. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I, I do not seek to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So now Paul is beginning to go into an articulation of the things that he has been praying for for the Ephesian church. And he gives two requests. We see the first request in verse 17. Prayer that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. That's his first request for the church in Ephesus. Now, I'm not going to preach on that first request. Pastor James a while back preached on that. But then he then gives a second request. And that's in verse 18. That having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Everybody say hope. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance? Everybody say riches. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power? Everybody say power. So he prays his second request is that he prays that the eyes of their heart would be enlightened for three things. Hope, riches, and power. Now, I was told, as you guys know, I have a habit of doing, that we have Harvest Festival. And so, Mickey, the head of our Kingdom Kids ministry, said, Pastor Ray, can you try to keep it short so we can get to the festival and get everything we need in place? So I told her I'm going to try my best. So when I saw those three things, the Holy Spirit told me, said, don't preach on those three things. <laughs> so I'm going to go with where the Spirit is going, even though really that's Mickey's voice in my head saying, don't preach on those three things. So I'm going to just talk about the first thing, amen? And the first thing that he prays for the Ephesian church is, he prays that they would know hope. Everybody say hope. Carrie. A 57-year-old woman living near Seattle who had lost her software sales job three years ago believes that her age has made her ongoing search for a new job feel hopeless. She says, quote, I went to an interview and the guy actually excused me before we even started. He said, well, we're looking at your resume and we don't feel that you're a, quote, good fit. Carrie recalls, why would I be brought in after two phone interviews with managers? She had taken all the rejection that she could, and she swallowed a bunch of pills. And there was a reason, she said. I had no hope. There was no point for the future. I was old, and I couldn't get my life back. 
Viktor Frankl was an Austrian Jewish neurologist and a psychotherapist who, along with his wife, were driven from his home and placed in a concentration camp among the other Jews. And as he fought just to make it every single day, he began to analyze his fellow inmates, paying close attention to how they coped with such demoralizing circumstances. And he noticed four consistent behaviors that his fellow inmates exhibited. First, he witnessed anger. Some became brutal, he said, cruel toward one another, both verbally and even physically, in an effort to mask the hopelessness. The second thing that he observed in the concentration camps was not only hope, uh, anger, but was despair. People found themselves giving into deep and profound despair, so much that they lost their lives as a result because they just gave up. He tells a story of, he says, usually this happened almost suddenly. It began one morning when the prisoner simply refused to get dressed, simply refused to wash or go and parade the grounds for inspection. No entreaties, no blows, no threats had any effect. They would just lay there. They had given up. Nothing bothered them anymore because they had no hope. He then even tells a stunning example of one of the individuals that was in the block where he was. He says, my senior block warden, a fairly well-known composer, confided in me one day. He said, I want to tell you something, doctor. I have had a strange dream. A voice told me that I could wish for something, that I should only say what I wanted to know and all my questions would be answered. Well, what do you think I asked? That I would like to know when the war would ultimately be over for me. You know what I mean, doctor? For me, I wanted to know when, when we, when our camp, when we would be liberated from this suffering, when it would finally end. Well, what did the voice answer, the doctor said. Furtively, he whispered to him, March 30th. He was convinced that the voice in his dream would be right. But as the promised day drew nearer and nearer, it appeared more and more that very unlikely that he would be freed by this promised date. And on March 29th, this man suddenly became very ill. And then on March 30th, the day of his prophecy, he became delirious and lost consciousness. And then on March 31st, he was dead. The loss of hope had lowered his body's resistance to all the diseases in the camp. And then he saw other people, found themselves in disillusionment, he said many held open the hope that, that if they just stayed alive, that their health, their family, their, their professional achievements, their fortune, their, their position in society, those things that they had hoped would be restored once they got out of the concentration camp. But he says, quote, but after liberation, so many found that when the day of their dreams had finally come, it was different than what they longed for. Many people, he said, went into deep depression. Not only temporarily, 
but for the rest of their lives after even being liberated. Many of them, he said, committed suicide. And he said, many of us said to ourselves while in the camp that no earthly happiness could compensate us for all that we had suffered. And yet afterward, we weren't prepared for the profound measure of disillusionment. You see, it is said that a man can live about 40 days without food, about three days without water, about eight minutes without air, but can only live for one second without hope. You see, what is it that you need to remain buoyant in the midst of the woes that you find yourselves in in your life? Hope. And why? Why? Because you literally cannot live without it. I wondered out of all the things that Paul could pray for for the Ephesian church, the first thing that he prayed for was hope. Now, I want you to notice the nature and the quality of that hope matters. Because, see, you remember those in the disillusionment camp? It's not that they didn't have hope, Dr. Franco said. The problem was the object of their hope. And he discovered that if you're going to remain steady, even in the midst of such profound, woeful challenges, you have to have an object of hope that suffering and death can't take away. And notice this in Ephesians. Paul just doesn't say hope. But what does he say? Lost my place. In verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has, what's that word, everyone? called. Everybody say called. He's not just talking about any old kind of hope. He's talking about a hope in their calling to which he has called you. So he's pointing to the object of their hope. Now this is in the genitive. And what scholars say with the language there, it could be a genitive of source Hope has its origin in his call or subjective genitive, hope produced by God's call. And notice it's his call. Who owns the call? Who gives the call? Who initiates the call? Who holds on to the call? So the question becomes is, what is the call? Well, the call is verses 3 through 11. Blessed be the God of our Father, verse 3, in the Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Everything that God has 
called you to is he articulates in verses 3 all the way down to 11. He talks about the call of the verse 4 fact that I am one level of love being loved by God that you are verse 4 chosen in him. But not only does God love you so much that he chose you in him, he's level 2 kind of love that God before there was even a molecule before the foundations of the world were made he wrote you in his book. But then there's a level 3 kind of love that he's called you to. This God has loved you so much that he's called you holy and blameless. And he calls you holy and blameless before you did anything holy or blameless. Before you did anything that is guilt-ridden, that is worthy of death. He already, before the foundations of the world, calls you holy and blameless. But not only that, verse 5, he's called you to be predestined in him such that you are now his son, adopted into his family with all of the rights and privileges of what it means to be the son of the father in heaven. But not only that, he's called you to be set free, verse 7, redemption through his blood, forgiveness of your trespasses, which means you don't have to walk in guilt, which means you don't have to walk in shame, which means you don't have to live under the tyranny of guilt, which means you don't have to do God replacement or God management because he loves you in the midst of the fact that he's forgiven you and redeemed you. But not only that, he's chosen you in Christ, verse 10, to sum up all of the events in your life, every single sincere issue, every single challenge in your life, in your life, in your life, and all of the billions and billions of people in the world across all eternity and time, he has set forth in Christ to actually sum up all things in him, verse 10. But not only that, verse 11, he's given you inheritance, an inheritance that belongs to you in the heavens. But that inheritance is guaranteed because he has put a deposit in you, namely the Holy Spirit. All and every single one of the things God has called you to. And watch this. Verse 3 says that blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ in with every spiritual blessing. And where is those spiritual blessings? In the heavenly places, which means that they're in a place that suffering and death can't touch. You see, it's a different kind of a hope. Because the hope that Viktor Frankl described of those who were in the concentration camps was hope that could be touched by suffering and death. And so what does Paul do? I'm going to raise your hope. And I'm going to put all of your blessings, I'm going to let you know where they are. They're in Christ which means they can't be touched because he is infinite, almighty, wonderful, good, and has all authority in heaven and earth, and they are placed in the heavenly places, verse 3, which means moth and rust can't touch them. This is why Romans chapter 11, verse 29 says, for the gifts and the calling of God are what? Irrevocable. Every one of those gifts... In verses 3 all the way down to verse 14, every one of them are a gift given to you in Christ, and they're irrevocable. Nothing can touch them. Nothing can claim them. Nothing can remove the gifts that God has given you in Christ. You think it's by accident that Paul tells us that they are in the heavenly places because all those blessings are in a place that those challenges in your life will never touch. 
You see, God has given you a kind of hope, therefore then, that can anchor you. No matter what this broken world takes from you, or no matter what this broken world withholds from you. You see, this is why in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, the second place where Paul talks about hope, and you can read it with me, remember, he says, that you were at that time, this was before Christ, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, and because of that, having no what? Hope. Because the only true hope that can truly be found can only be found in Jesus. And all of the hopes that we had before Christ were not hope. Remember I mentioned the disillusionment. And how Dr. Franco talked about the fact that many held their hope that if they just simply stayed alive, that their health, that their family, that their professional achievements, that their positions in society, that all that they worked for would be restored to them. Right? So that's the hope that got them through the concentration camp. But then when they got out of the concentration camp, they realized that all of those things were marked by death and suffering. And as a result, they still found themselves in the same mental and emotional place that they were in inside the camp, outside of it. You see, if you just pause and examine those things right now in your life that you're hoping in, outside of what you have in Christ, and I'm sure every one of us here are hoping in things to bring some measure of security, safety, affirmation. We're looking to things outside of Christ. I know I'm not just the only one. I want you to think about those things. And I want you to quickly begin to realize that every single one of them, suffering and death, can and will touch. If you're hoping in a spouse to bring whatever desire your heart longs for, first of all, they are never going to be enough. Those of you who are married, you know what I'm talking about. Amen? Amen. I'm not enough. I'm not enough. But even if you find a spouse that can do that, which really doesn't exist, and he or she can fill you up in all the ways that your heart longed for, right? All of those Korean drama, little romantic comedy stuff, right? Y'all know, because that's what it, people talk like that. I mean, I look, I just, I'm going to be everything you need. Oh boy, that's, that's doomed for failure. But don't we all go in saying stuff like that? But here's the reality. Even if he or she could be that for you, he or she is going to die. And then where will you be? You can put your hope in success. I remember Ray Charles talked about his successful career. 
He talked about the fact that whenever he had a, a hit song, he found himself discouraged and depressed. It's like, wait a minute, you just wrote a song that was a hit. He said, the reason why is because the moment I had reached the mountaintop, I got to go back down the mountain and do it all over again. Because the success continues to elude you. And at some point, we all are not as successful as we once were. What about hope in society, government policies? I don't even need to talk. Like I said, I don't even need to talk about that. Our government is broken, sorely, profoundly, and badly. Put your hope in the fruit of financial stability and job security. That's dead hope. What about hope in your youth? Every one of us are not going to be the hot thing that we once were one day. Uh, uh, Hey, hey, speak for yourself. (laughs) Hope that I have to move, if I move to a better neighborhood, that I'll avoid the challenges of people that are robbing, pillaging, killing, and stealing. Yet I remember talking to a friend who moved his family to a safe neighborhood, trying to get out of a bad neighborhood, only find, to find that the individual that next door that lived to him in this good neighborhood got shot and killed two weeks after they moved in. Because you can't run from brokenness. Because fallenness is in the entire world. And here's the reason why. Because it's in you and me. Wherever you go, so goes the brokenness. If the things in this world are where we find ourselves resting our hope, then that means many of us, listen to what I'm saying here. If we find ourselves resting in things in this world that are prone to have themselves impacted by suffering and death, then you are just one dead hope away from a life ruled by anger, disillusionment, and despair. You want to know why God doesn't promise you the blessing of wealth? You want to know why God doesn't promise you the blessing of success? You know, I wonder why Paul, in, in that litany from verses 3 all the way to 14, didn't say that, that the heavenly blessings are, I'm going I'm to I'm I'm get you relational um, wealth, that, that I'm going to get you children, that I'm going I'm to get you a legacy, that, that I'm going to get you a purpose, that, that you're going to make a mark on the world. The, the blessing is, is that you're going to have wealth beyond the wildest dreams. Here's why. Is because rooting your joy in the hope of things that will be here today and gone tomorrow is the worst thing that God do for you. If he did that for you, he would be hating you. So do you hear what I'm saying? But here's the irony, and I'm guilty. The irony is sometimes, and even now, some of you, I know me, we look at God sideways, wondering if he loves us because he doesn't give us those things. Right? Right now, some of us here are not happy with God. Because he's not giving us that thing in the world that we feel is going to give us that area of need that we want that is outside of Christ. And we're not happy. 
But maybe God's not giving it to you because that is the most loving and good thing he could do for you. You see, in verse 12, having no hope. When he says in verse 12 of chapter 2, having no hope, it's actually written, if you notice, in the present. Presently having no hope. And he's talking about the past that outside of Christ, before we came to salvation, we were without hope. But the reason why Paul puts it in the present, having no hope, is for us to remember that in the former times, they were continually finding themselves in a place that everything outside of Jesus just wasn't filling them up with hope. And Paul wants us to remember that in the present. Just remember, before Jesus, you had no hope. Just remember that the hope that you had in sex, the hope that you had in money, the hope that you had in power, the hope that you had in safety, the hope that you had in affirmation, all of those things that you were looking for in the world, be reminded. They just weren't your hope. Be reminded that in reality in the past, you had no hope. And the reason why Paul wants to remind them in verse 12, to constantly be reminded of the fact that you did not have hope before you came to Jesus, is so that when you remind yourself of that, you can shout with joy for the simple fact that in Jesus, you have blessing, blessings that moth and rust can't destroy and where thieves cannot break in and steal. So the question becomes then, how do you gain hope? If hope is indispensable, if you can't live without hope, and you want to find an object of hope that can't be touched by this world, how do you gain it? Or how do you gain more of it? Well, we see that in verse 18. Verse 18 in Ephesians. And he prays, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope. So how do you gain hope? <clears throat> One, if you haven't already come to Jesus, then come to Jesus right now. I'm begging you. If you don't know Jesus today as your Lord, your Savior, and your treasure, and you've been trying to find hope in everything in this world, I'm telling you right now, it will not satisfy. You are going to find yourself always on the short end of what the world promises, and that void inside of you is going to remain empty. But today, in Jesus, you can find those every spiritual blessings with a hope that is far more profound than anything in this world. But if you already have Jesus today, how do you gain more hope? Because this is also in the present. It's you already have hope, but it ebbs and flows, right? Just like Paul says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. We already have the Spirit, but the Spirit can ebb and flow. 
and hope can ebb and flow. And so how can you gain more hope? Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope. This is what you need to do. Pray. Pray Paul's prayer. Pray for the eyes of your heart to be enlightened to the wonder, beauty, and magnitude of what you have in Jesus in verses 3 through 14. Pray. You can't will it. You can't work it. You can't walk out of here and say, yep, that was a good sermon. All those things I have in Jesus, and so now I'm going to have hope. You wonder why the first thing that Paul does after he articulates the wonderful blessings is he prays. He prays for the Ephesians. God, because if you don't do a supernatural, spirit-wrought work in their hearts, then they're going to miss it. And so, Lord, will you open the eyes of their heart? See, you realize something. Your heart has eyes. This phrase is actually unique to Paul. No one else uses it in the scriptures. Your heart has eyes. You see, your heart, your heart is what is called the executive center. It is the place from where everything else flows. Where your heart is, that's where your treasures are. And it is the place from where you see things a certain way. Your outlook is determined by your heart. Your actions are determined by your heart. Your choices are determined by your heart. And your heart is always looking. And it's looking to find a center to root itself in so that it can gain what it desires. See, your heart needs security. Your heart needs to feel a sense of control. Your heart needs a purpose. Your heart needs affirmation. And your heart needs hope. And so Paul prays that their hearts would see all the hope-giving calling of verses 3 through 14 that belong to them in Jesus. Because see, verses 3 through 14, that calling, that hope, is untouchable because it's in the heavens. It's infinite in its worth because it's in Christ and it belongs to you because in Christ you belong to God and so if you want more hope pray for more hope but pray specifically for your heart but not only pray if you want more hope preach 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 to yourself. See, this is what David does in Psalm 42. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Hope in God.
pray, preach. And trust that the Spirit of God, through those efforts, will meet you in those places where you need profound hope. So what is it that you need to remain buoyant in the midst of the woes of your life? You need hope. Why? Because without hope, you literally cannot live. And how do you gain it? Pray that the eyes of your heart are enlightened to see just how much you have in Jesus. And preach to yourself the wonders and the beauties of all that you've gained in him. You see, however we navigate our present circumstances, it always is contingent upon where your hope lies. And I told you about Carrie as she popped those pills. She said, there was a reason I had no hope because there was no point for the future. I couldn't get my life back. She could not sustain her present because she had no future. But if you're in Jesus today, you have a future. That Paul says, what eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. You see, every one of us has, and maybe even now is, and will find yourselves in a place of hopelessness. But I didn't read to you the last verse in the pericope of Micah, chapter 7. You know what, Micah, after he talks about how society is jacked up, how the politicians are jacked up, how his friends are jacked up, how his family is messed up, how even everything that he worked for in all of his life had come to nothing in the end. You know what Micah declares? He does what David did, and he says this, yet I will look to the Lord. Look to the Lord, church, and you will find in him all the hope you long for. And why? Because in him, as we will now celebrate, you have a harvest. It may feel like a desert. It may feel like you're in a wilderness. And many of you may be. But even in the wilderness, if you're in Jesus, you have a harvest. So I want to encourage you today. Walk in the harvest that belongs to you and him. God, we come before you right now. And we ask you, Lord, that you would meet every single heart here that is troubled. Every woe is me. And I pray, God, that you would enlighten the eyes of their hearts. Enlighten each one of our hearts to know the hope to which you have called us. That we might experience whatever longing our heart is searching for. Because it is in hope in you that we can find security, safety, belonging, affirmation, purpose, love. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen.